Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, Evelyn El-Sultani argues that even amid challenges to institutionalized Islamophobia, diversity initiatives fail on their promise by only focusing on crisis moments. Muslims get included through crisis diversity, where high-profile Islamophobic incidents are urgently responded to and then ignored until the next crisis. In the popular culture arena of television, this means interrogating even those representations of Muslims that others have celebrated as refreshingly positive. In the realms of corporations, she critically examines the firing of high-profile individuals for anti-Muslim speech, a remedy that rebrands corporations as anti-racist, while institutional racism remains intact. At universities, Muslim students get included in diversity, equity, and inclusion plans, but then get disrupted if they are involved in Palestinian rights activism. And in law enforcement, hate crime laws revolving around violence against Muslims fail to address root causes. In our conversation, we discuss anti-Muslim racism and the racialization of Muslims in America, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, corporate motivations to value diversity, recent Hollywood representations of Muslims, the Obeidi el-Sultani test, racial gaslighting in law enforcement, the 2015 Chapel Hill shooting, anti-Muslim speech at NPR and ESPN, Palestinian activism on campus, and strategies to move beyond crisis diversity. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Now, here's my conversation with Evelyn El-Sultani about Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, published with NYU Press in 2022. Welcome, Evelyn. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Good, Christian. Happy to be here with you. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. Oh, well, that's really nice to uh, say. Muslims made by Muslims, which is not what I look at. And I uh, really deeply appreciate the, uh, the work that you do and your support of my own work over the years. So thanks uh, for having yes. me. I, I, am a, I am a big fan of yours, as you know. Listeners uh, probably could guess that based on some of the, the work I've been doing uh, in the past few years. But I'm really excited to talk about uh, your new book, Broken, The Fail Promise of Muslim Inclusion, um, which extends from some of your previous work, but really takes it in, in very uh, productive uh, new directions as well. Um, before we get into the book proper, though, uh, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your journey as a scholar? Were there moments or mentors uh, that kind of uh, constructed you in a particular way to study the communities and ideas that you're interested in or the, the type of approach that you take? Yes. Um, I tell a little bit about this story in the introduction to my book, which is that when I got to college in the early 90s, I really wanted to learn about my own experiences as an Arab, Latina, Muslim, growing up in New York City, 
and I was exposed to women's studies courses and ethnic studies courses, and I learned so much, but I was longing to learn about Arab Muslim experiences in the U.S. And at the time, the options were, if you want to learn about Islam, you went to religious studies. And if you wanted to learn about Arabs, you went to Middle East studies. And uh, so that longing really shaped my academic trajectory. And uh, later when I went to graduate school, uh, my proposal was to bring Arabs and Muslims into conversations in ethnic studies. And that was back in 1999. And I, I did get into Stanford on that project. And my advisor at the time told me to change my topic. Not because she was being discouraging, but she said, go look at the job postings. You should either do, if you're interested in ethnic studies, do Latino studies. If you're interested in Muslims, do women in Islam, uh, because that's where the jobs are. And uh, after 9-11, that really changed. So um, it, it's an interesting connection to my current book, which is looking at crisis moments and what becomes possible during these crisis moments and what is not possible during the crisis moments. And I do believe that my career, uh, as it has been, would not have been possible without the crisis moment that was 9-11 that uh, opened the possibility of examining the racialization of Arabs and Muslims, et cetera. Um, now, uh, you've done a lot of great work um, previously to this book, um, but it does seem like there is some tie-in. So can, can you talk a little bit about how this uh, a particular project, how Broken, started to emerge as kind of a, a set of questions or, or, or domains that you wanted to look at in conversation and how that relates to your kind of broader research trajectory? Yeah. So both of my books look at the cultural politics around Muslim identities in the U.S. with a focus on questions of racialization and representation, how Muslims are depicted uh, and what that means for the possibility of inclusion in the U.S. And my first book was inspired by what I would refer to as sympathetic images of Muslims after 9-11, where I was watching TV after 9-11, and there were many... TV dramas that had a patriotic Muslim character or a Muslim character who was an innocent victim to hate crimes, and the audience would have the opportunity to sympathize with them. And I was surprised by these images because we have inherited, you know, a whole system of meaning about Muslims as violent, terroristic, oppressed women, et cetera, that I expected for that to be even greater, to be intensified. And it was. But at the same time, these sympathetic images emerged. And in the first book, I basically, in examining these positive images, I argue that they help to legitimize racist policies and practices. For example, back then, during the war on terror, one of the key logics operating was that, uh, and I, this is from the theorist Giorgio Gombin, who talks about the logic of exception. So this is the idea, racism is wrong. But because it's a time of crisis, we have to racially profile. Or torture is wrong. The United States does not torture. But because we're in this moment of crisis, we have no choice. We have to win the war on terror. So in that book, I look at the logics and also the affects. There was a lot of feeling for the oppressed Muslim women, feeling sympathy for 
um, Muslims who were victimized by hate crimes and how these logics and ethics were shaping the war on terror and ultimately legitimizing a war machine and incredible death and destruction. In contrast, the second book looks at how Islamophobia has come to be recognized as a social and political problem and how this recognition of Islamophobia is taking place in an era of diversity. So uh, the book is really about how Muslims have come to be included in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives over the last decade or so, and how that recognition, this inclusion, took place by recognizing Islamophobia. It's an old phenomenon, but uh, interestingly, I did a word search in my first book, and I don't use the word Islamophobia once. And the book came out in 2012. We weren't using Islamophobia at that time, but now we use that word all the time. Uh, so the lexicon has become part of our lexicon. Uh, so we've come to recognize Islamophobia through hate crimes, through policies like the Muslim ban. And in the book, I argue that uh, Muslims have come to be included through what I call crisis diversity. And these are crisis moments. We can take the Muslim ban as uh, one example uh, that draws attention to longstanding racism and it galvanizes the public into action. And it results in a domino effect of responses. So the public becomes aware of a problem, Islamophobia. And then people of that identity group are called upon to urgently educate the public and advise. So people like you and me, Christian, were called upon at those moments to educate people about Islam, about Muslims, media conglomerates and corporations, universities, they issue statements or they embark on a new diversity initiative. And then the crisis moment passes and we don't pay attention into, to the issue until the next crisis. So one of the um, big focus in this book compared to the last book is recognition of Islamophobia as a as a problem, inclusion of Muslim in certain policies, diversity policies. And also the first book was focused, it, it, was, it was take this uh, war on terror moment for the first book was taking place during a moment Obama was about to become president. Uh, people in the US were saying we're in a post-race moment. Whereas with the second book, it was not, we were not talking about the U.S. as post-race or pushing back against this idea of post-race, but rather we were talking about Trump, white supremacy, racism, how do we challenge racism, and diversity ends up being the tool that's being used instead of affirmative action, because there's so much criticism of affirmative action, so diversity ends up being the tool to deal with uh, and challenge racism. So it's, it's, Two different moments, two different decades, one after the other. Uh, but the the focus, it says a lot about what happens to Muslims over the 20 years since 9-11. Now, um, this, this, one of the central threads here is this, um, this notion of anti-Muslim racism, uh, which a lot of scholars prefer um, to the term Islamophobia. And, uh, you know, from a general public view, you often get pushback to that. Like, what are you talking about? Muslims aren't a race. So can you kind of just give us uh, like a brief 101 of uh, what scholars mean when they're talking about the right racialization of Muslims? Yes. 
And yes, you're right. There has been a debate. Do you say Islamophobia? Do you say anti-Muslim racism? Some of the earlier definitions of Islamophobia, such as the one that came out of the Runnymede Trust in the UK, um, which led to Islamophobia becoming a mainstream term in the UK before the US, I think the Runnymede Trust's uh, report might have been in the late 1990s. And uh, they defined Islamophobia as fear of Muslims. And so a lot of people said it's not just fear, because it makes it sound like, oh, is this a phobia? So I'm scared of you because you're Muslim. So does that mean I can get over my phobia if I get therapy or if I get education? And so the criticism was that the definition tended to individualize um, and psychologize Islamophobia. And so some scholars pushed back and said, we need to look at it as something systemic. It's not just individual, but it's in the system. It's something that's produced by people in power, by institutions. And interestingly enough, the Running Me Trust uh, revised their definition, I think maybe five years ago, and their new definition is Islamophobia is anti-Muslim racism. Uh, but some religious studies scholars say, if you say anti-Muslim racism, then are you saying Islam Muslims are a race? And that is not the point. The point is to talk about racialization. And I think the best way to explain uh, what is meant by racialization is by looking at the definition that I use in my book that comes from Nadine Naber and Janine Rana. They have um, an article in Jadalia where they define anti-Muslim racism as the interpersonal media and state-based targeting of Muslims. Uh, where there is an assumption that Muslims are a threat to the United States, a threat to U.S. national security, and that it also impacts people who aren't Muslim. So we have an idea of who Muslims are, and Indian people who are Sikh, for example, can be targeted. People who are not Muslim can be targeted. So um, within that, uh, in my book, I um, define anti-Muslim racism using this definition as uh, we need to understand the position of Muslims in relation to a history of domestic policies and racism in the United States, historically in the United States, uh, from the dispossession of Native Americans and the enslavement of Black people for many centuries, the white, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian, able-bodied, neurotypical, male has been at the center of normative identity construction, center of meaning, and all other groups have been marginalized. And so that includes Muslim, not in a unique way. All groups in different ways have been dealing with the impact of this very long history of constructing laws, policies, media that um, normalizes and privileges this particular white male identity. But then the added component when we're looking at Muslims is the foreign policy component, which is the demonization of Muslims as a threat to U.S. national security. So, and it's not new. It's not new on 9-11, but a, a history of policies where the United States has portrayed Muslims as barbaric and threatening. So we can go back to the 1967 war in support of Israel at the expense of Palestinians, or well, this is in Melanie McAllister's book, this very um, in 
informative to my own work. Uh, we could look at the Arab oil embargo in 1973 and how that led to the portrayal of Arabs as rich oil sheiks who are threatening the U.S. economy. And then the Iran hostage crisis that led to this conflation that we are still trying to disentangle of Arabs, Muslims, Iranians is all mashed up and all the same. And so there's a long history of meaning making through policies. Uh, and so the point of anti-Muslim racism in the book, I go between the two. So I prefer anti-Muslim racism, but I also recognize that Islamophobia is the operating term. So in the book, I make the case for anti-Muslim racism, uh, but I tend to use both terms. So uh, in the book, you look at diversity initiatives across several different uh, types of institutions. Um, can, can you talk just briefly about some of the key factors we might need to know about uh, kind of current diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts um, to, to kind of get into the project? What, what are some of the kind of institutional or corporate motivations for, you, can, you know, quote unquote, valuing diversity? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, diversity has emerged as an alternative to affirmative action. Affirmative action has always been controversial and affirmative action emerged to try to repair a history of inequality. But from the very beginning, uh, people have said it was giving Black people and other marginalized groups an unfair advantage. And uh, over the last few decades, we've seen some states vote down affirmative action. Uh, so we've been moving towards diversity. Um, I should mention that uh, there was a legal case in 2003 that was very uh, important in terms of shaping affirmative action and also the current conversation on diversity, and that was the Grutter versus University of Michigan case in which a white woman sued the University of Michigan Law School and said that she didn't get in because of affirmative action. And the University of Michigan won the case, and they won the case because they made the argument that diversity is beneficial to all people. So rather than saying we are using affirmative action to repair a history of inequality, their strategy that one was we want a diverse student body because it benefits everyone. It's good for students to be in a classroom where there are different points of view. It helps students be more marketable in a global marketplace because they're, they've been around people with diverse points of view. Uh, so the language around affirmative action, the reasoning for affirmative action, and now for diversity is that it's good for everybody. It's good for business. It's good for education. There are all these studies that have come out that show if you have a diverse team that you're likely to be more profitable, more effective. And uh, these are great. So, so I don't have criticism of studies that have been done to show that diversity benef is beneficial to everyone in society. But it seems that there's been a lot of effort to sell diversity to the public. Like, okay, we're not doing affirmative action and giving unfair advantages to people who don't deserve it. Instead, we can get on board because diversity is a good thing. It, it feels good. It benefits everyone. It's not about just benefiting certain people. And in that process, diversity becomes separated from social justice objectives. We're no longer looking at repairing a history of inequality, but rather 
trying to make this case that it's good for all people and it feels good. So on the one hand, one of the things I think is beneficial about diversity is that it actually allows for the inclusion of Muslims and LGBTQ people and neurodiverse people. So it allows for the inclusion of more marginalized groups. Uh, but at the same time, it can sometimes lead to being separated from social justice objectives. But it is in this moment of switching from affirmative action to diversity, equity, inclusion that we start seeing the inclusion of Muslims. And uh, in the book, I look at different institutions. I look at the media, law enforcement, corporations, and universities to see what happens when Muslims come to be included in their diversity, equity, and inclusion plans or conceptions. Now, uh, one of the things I always love about your work, and this this book does uh, an excellent job, is uh, not only kind of getting into the the data, so to speak, of uh, you know things I'm interested in, but you always provide these really excellent kind of frameworks for analysis. And um, you know, in your exploration of these various domains that you just mentioned, you also explore what what uh, kind of various strategies or modes of inclusion uh, they deploy. Um, and this is the kind of other framing of the 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 work, right? It's not only this uh, these institutions, but then also kind of what mode of inclusion they provide. And in your opening, you you talk about uh, what you call stereo confirmed expansions in re relation to uh, kind of picking up from your first book, the 2010 to 2015 Hollywood representation of Muslims. Um, so can you can you tell us what you mean by this stereotype confirmed expansions? And then how do you see the kind of representations of Muslims during this period relating to these these previous kind of possibilities that you mentioned earlier in the conversation? Yeah. So uh, one of the observations I was trying to I've been tracking how are representations of Muslims changing over time? How do we understand what appears to be improvement? So for, with the first book, how do we come to understand the appearance of this patriotic Muslim and these victimized Muslims? Uh, and with the second book, the first two chapters are about media, and each chapter has a particular concept to help us understand the possibilities and limits of diversity within that context. So Stereotype-confined expansions is the term I use to describe representations of Muslims in the U.S. media from roughly 2010 to 2015. Actually, I should go back because I think the patriot is part of this, part of the stereotype-confined expansions. And what a stereotype-confined expansion is, an expansion in representations that's defined and confined by the stereotype is trying to challenge. So if we have a terrorist and so with the first book, for example, we're going to throw in a patriot. Writers and producers are getting a lot of heat about stereotyping, adding fuel to the fire. So, okay, we're going to throw a patriotic Muslim who's going to fight and die for the United States. And then that's supposed to lessen the stereotype. We know they're not all bad. Some of them are good. And it's very limiting because the patriotic Muslim, you're getting to know this Muslim in the context of terrorism. And then Muslims are either good or bad in the context of terrorism. 
And then the idea of patriotism. So does that mean to be a good Muslim, you have to be patriotic in a very narrow sense of the term and fight and die to prove your loyalty to the United States. So it's, it's very limiting in that way. The other iteration that emerged in around 2010 is the secular Muslim. And I should rewind and say that examples of the patriotic Muslim include uh, the TV drama 24, Homeland, Quantico. There were many terrorism themed shows. And even more recently, we have uh, Jack Ryan, that uh, season one that follows a similar trajectory. And then the secular Muslim, I'm thinking about Aziz Ansari, uh, Kumail Nanjiani, The Big Sick. Um, and also in the book, I write about the reality TV show, Shots of Sunset. And so in these cases, there was this idea in the U.S. imaginary and through the policies that we were seeing, this fanatical Muslim, you can't reason with him. He's just so religious and so rigid and so dangerous that you just can't reason with these people. That was you know, how it was portrayed. And so it seems like the response to that is, oh, but there are Muslims out there. They're not even religious. They don't even care about Islam. And so you have Aziz Ansari literally going on a pork eating. Um, he goes to a pork eating festival. He's eating tons of pork. He's drinking alcohol and uh, proving that he's not the Muslim that you think that he is. So there are secular Muslims. So my, I always, when I talk about the emergence of the secular Muslim character as part of stereotype confined expansions, it's an expansion. Yes, it, it's positive in many ways. And many of us are secular as Muslims. So my criticism is that, oh, Aziz Ansari isn't a quote unquote good Muslim. There are so many different ways to be Muslim, including to be a cultural Muslim or a secular Muslim or to exist in a wide range of possibility in terms of religiosity. So my criticism is not about Aziz Ansari or Kamil Nanjiani and how they do or don't practice, but rather, why did this figure become possible at this moment. And so what I was observing is that there are these expansions and representations, but they're really limiting when they are tied to trying to be a corrective to a stereotype. So stereotype confined expansions reveals a limited conceptualization of Muslims and also the emergence of normative Muslim categories. So to be a normative Muslim, then you either fall into the patriotic Muslim category or the secular Muslim category. And that's what it that's the pathway available to inclusion in the United States as a Muslim during that time period. But then this the next chapter looks at 2015 to 2020, and we see uh, a greater expansion in representations during that time period. Yeah. And so so that uh you talk about this diversity compromise as the kind of analytical framework here. So what I guess what's changing in the uh, 2015 to 2020 period? So there was one big change, and that was Donald <laughs> Trump. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this in terms of crisis diversity, that there were so many crises after 9-11, as far as Muslims were concerned. War in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, Patriot Act, special registration. I mean, the Muslim ban is not extraordinary when you think about Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay prison, it's not, there's nothing about the Muslim ban that marks it as significantly different from all of these other policies that were excluding Muslims, putting Muslim life at risk. The Iraq war, over 150,000 Iraqi civilians were killed. So 
But people reacted to the Muslim ban in an unprecedented way. And it's because Donald Trump was such a polarizing figure previously during Obama post-race era. It's not so bad. We can do countering violent extremism as a policy. We can, you know, pass other, we can do secret drone strikes in Yemen. Uh, but with Trump, the overtness of his racism galvanized the public. So what ends up happening 2015 to 2020, and, and Trump announced his idea for a Muslim ban in 2015, and then he became president later. Hollywood uh, was galvanized and they responded. So they started including Muslim characters in storylines and contexts that had nothing to do with terrorism. Uh, so, for example, on Grey's Anatomy, we finally get Dr. Qadri, who's a Muslim woman who wears a hijab and she's a doctor. Um, we have, I, I always forget the whole list because there, there are so many, but on the bull type, the first lesbian Muslim on television, on DC Legends of Tomorrow, uh, an Iranian Muslim superhero. Uh, on Love, Victor, which is a coming-of-age story about a gay Latino boy, he, he has a friend, Rahim, who's an Iranian Muslim and is also gay. Uh, so we start seeing more and more Muslims in context out, outside of terrorism. And then we start seeing shows that are actually written by Muslims, about Muslims, uh, starring Muslims like Rami on Hulu, Mo on Netflix, We Are Lady Parts, which is... From the UK, but it's streaming on Peacock, uh, sort of on uh, HBO Max, Ms. Marvel, on Disney Plus. And this was not possible before Trump. So something happened during the Trump administration where there was a real expansion of representations. Uh, in terms of long term impact, it's really hard to say because, you know, you have a dozen shows, we've inherited thousands of repre stereotypical representation. So a few dozens is not really going to change it. Uh, but some of these efforts really fell flat in one way or another. And so the diversity compromise describes when Hollywood producers and writers make a concerted effort to challenge stereotypes, but the effort still falls flat in some way. Uh, another way that I define the diversity compromise is when one important component of the problem is addressed, but others are ignored or insufficiently confronted. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. One example is the 2019 live action Aladdin movie. So this film finally did really well with the casting. It casted Arab, Iranian, and South Asian actors to you know play all the roles in Aladdin. The earlier Aladdin, the animated one from the 1990s, was criticized because uh, Aladdin and Jasmine were whitewashed. They had Americanized accents. Oh, the bad Arabs had weird accents. And so after Oscar's So White and a bunch of movies flopping in the box office, such as Prince of Persia, that was played by Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Exodus Gods and Kings, starring Christian Bale. Uh, there was a lot of criticism of casting white actors to play roles in quote unquote Persia or ancient Egypt that finally, with Aladdin, they got the casting right. But then the question remains, is Orientalism better than terrorism? And it seems that people in Hollywood believe, well, an exotic East is better than a terroristic one. Uh, 
So the diversity compromise describes, oh, well, you get this, you get better casting. Finally, we're not whitewashing in this case, but we can't go all the way and give you a film that's not Orientalist. And many have said, you know what, with Aladdin, it's impossible for it not to be an Orientalist film. And I get that. But then the other issue is, why is so much invested to produce old stories when there's so many new stories to tell? Another example is um, there was a TV show came, that came out of Canada that was broadcast on NBC called Transplant. This was about a Syrian Muslim refugee doctor trying to remake his life in Canada. Really amazing, important show. We have a leading Syrian doctor. It's like ER, but he has, he's, a, he's a refugee escaping the civil war in Syria. And in the very first scene, something happens. It looks like a terrorist attack and you think he's a terrorist. And then it turns out he's not. But we have a lot of these moments in, in, in many TV shows where you can't escape this association with the stereotype. And so that's what uh, the diversity compromise describes. Uh, so many, many stories that are that are making an effort but compromise in some way. Uh, but in terms of the productions by Muslims there, I would put them in a separate category. They really show what's possible. I wouldn't use the diversity compromise to describe Rami, Ormo, or We Are Lady Parts. And um, also in this chapter, you talk about a, uh, a test that you developed, um, kind of like the Bechdel test, uh, to help creators uh, think about representation of Muslims. Can, can you talk a little bit about the background of that? how that kind of came about, and then what the criteria is for, I guess, passing passing the test? Um, yeah. So I was talking to a friend colleague of mine, Sue Obeidy, who is the director of the Hollywood Bureau at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And we were talking about all these shows, you know, hey, did you see um, Lone Star 911? There's a firefighter. She's Muslim. She wears the hijab. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, but too bad, you know, that one scene where her hijab falls off on the job and her hair's blowing in the wind and people, Muslims on Twitter went crazy. We're just meant, we we're talking and noticing all of these efforts that were falling flat. So we decided to create a test. It's basically a tool to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims, specifically in this moment of diversifying representations. And we were inspired by other tests. So the Bechtel test um, is a test to measure representations of women. Uh, the criteria is that you need to have two women who are talking to each other about anything other than a man. And it very much reveals how women have historically been portrayed in Hollywood. There is a RIS test uh, for Muslim representation out of the UK that highlights uh, terrorism and oppressed veiled women. Uh, there is a Russo test for LGBTQ representation. So there are many tests like this to bring Hollywood's attention to common stereotypes. Our test is different from the RIS test because it's not highlighting the historic stereotypes, but rather it's highlighting common pitfalls uh, in diversifying representations and trying to highlight those pitfalls and offer a pathway forward. So there are five criteria. Uh, the first criterion is that uh, we should be focusing on new stories rather than old tropes. And so the idea here is instead of remaking Aladdin or instead of there's a trend to redo 
terrorist-themed stories with Muslims, but to give the Muslim character uh, terrorists a lot of backstory. Um, and it's just redoing terrorist stories. So instead of doing terrorism stories or new approaches to Orientalism, why not explore new stories? There are 2 billion Muslims in the world and so many stories to explore. Uh, the second criterion is to avoid mistakes by having a Muslim writer on staff from start to finish. So in my experience as a consultant, I'm usually tacked in at the end where there's very little I can do. And I would much rather than have a Muslim writer rather than me as a consultant through the entire project if you are having, if you're portraying Muslims. Uh, the third is that the Muslim character should not solely be defined by their religion. We've seen many characters that are Muslim that are not just people, but they're entirely, it's like they're robots, they're Muslim robots. Uh, so the idea here is that if you have a character, Islam can be part of their story. Muslim, being Muslim is part of their identity. It doesn't have to be 100% of the identity. The fourth criterion is that uh, for the Muslim character to have a strong presence in the storyline. And we do not expect every story to have a Muslim lead, but we were noticing a trend of just throwing a Muslim character in the background to say that you've had one. And this applies to Dr. Kadri on Grey's Anatomy when she was no longer on the show. It was irrelevant to the storyline, but she was there in the background and not a big part of the show. Uh, and this happens with many, many other underrepresented groups to just throw it in the background. And then the fifth is to focus on the diversity of Muslims, that not all Muslims have to be Arab or South Asian. They can be Black. I mean, I don't, maybe in your work, Christian, I'd be curious, but in U.S. media, I, haven't, I don't see Chinese Muslims, Indonesian Muslims, Latino Muslims. Like I, Right now, there is an expansion. I'm seeing more Black Muslims, but um, other identities I'm not, I'm not seeing. So we're trying to encourage Hollywood to understand the diversity of Islam and explore those different identities. Yeah, I don't I don't see uh, much diversity within Muslim representations in general. It does seem to be Arab, South Asian, kind of half and half, and occasionally uh, black Muslims, which uh, unfortunately should be much higher since most, most of these productions are North American based, which black Muslims are the majority of the Muslim population. Um, well, so, uh, you know, as you move on throughout the book, you you expand to other institutions and uh, you you focus uh, in the, the next chapter on law enforcement and you consider um, issues of violence against Muslims. And then you introduce us to this notion of uh, racial gaslighting. So um, can, can you talk about what you mean by this term? And then how does an incident like the 2015 Chapel Hill shooting demonstrate what what's going on with this framework? Yes. So um, I'll start with what happened in 2015 and 2017 that got me interested in this topic. But in 2015, three Muslim students were killed by their neighbor in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Dia Barakat, Yusur Abu Salha, and Razan Abu Salha. And then in 2017, 17-year-old Nabra Hassanin was killed by... Um, Darwin Martinez Torres, who was an undocumented immigrant in Reston, Virginia. Um, the three students who were murdered in 2015, their neighbor was a white male uh, car parts salesperson. And uh, I was surprised that both of these cases made headline news because many um, hate crimes against, against Muslims, you can find them in the newspaper or you can find them. I usually find out about them because I'm on 
the Council on American Islamic Relations listserv. And so there are all these stories that they sent out regularly. But these two were on CNN. They actually made uh, headline news. And both of them were not classified as hate crimes. And so I was curious, why weren't they classified as hate crimes? And um, Council on American Islamic Relations drafted a letter uh, to uh, the attorney general and 150 civil rights groups signed the letter asking that these hate crimes be investigated as these crimes be investigated as hate crimes. And so the community was organizing, saying we need these to be classified as hate crimes because Islamophobia is on the rise. It's everywhere. And these were Islamophobic incidents. I was wondering, why did it not get defined as a hate crime? To what extent does it matter? And law enforcement kept saying, you know what, it doesn't matter if it's a hate crime. What matters is that we're going to charge the people who committed these crimes to the fullest extent of the law. And both men did get life in prison for these murders. Uh, but what occurred to me is that, so I use the term racial gaslighting to say that when there is a hate crime against Muslims, that the label is denied. And so it's saying, you know, this was a hate, this was a crime, but it wasn't a hate crime. This was a murder, but it's not about Islamophobia. And so there's this separation that was taking place between what the community experienced versus how law enforcement was going to classify it. So racial gaslighting, I define as the systemic denial of the persistence of racism, in this case, anti-Muslim racism, and that it normalizes racial violence. Uh, this is a term that I did not come up with. It's in. It's been circulating, circulated a lot during the Trump presidency uh, in relation to other groups. Uh, so I was wondering, okay, let's say hypothetically that law enforcement says, okay, you get the hate crime designation. Then does that solve the problem? And what I discovered is that the designation matters for recognition. We want recognition in the Muslim community that this was a hate crime. We want the state to say, yes, this is Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism. But the recognition does not solve the problem of hate crimes. And the reason is we're going to go back to the definition of anti-Muslim racism we talked about earlier, which is that we can't understand anti-Muslim racism outside of the national security machine that demonizes Muslims. So similarly here, we can't address hate crimes without addressing the national security machine that inspires them. So it's not just oh, an individual one day woke up and decided to murder his Muslim neighbors, but this individual is getting constant messaging in the media from politicians, from policies that Muslims are a threat and then acting upon them. So, and, and I think this chapter really highlights the problematic of inclusion, which is that uh, the hate crime designation is only about recognition. It's not about solving the problem and solving the problem, solving anti-Muslim racism, going to the root causes means. And do I know how to do this? No, but it means because it's such a big project. It means no having the state involved. We can't just talk about hate crimes as if that is the only kind of violence that Muslims experience when Muslims are experiencing such a wide, vast array of violence because of the state. Going back to the Iraq War, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, etc. There is so much violence that Muslims are experiencing 
because of uh, state policies. And so in the chapter, I try to think through and make that uh, connection. Um, in the next chapter, you look at uh, a kind of different strategy for inclusivity or a different mode of inclusion um, in regards to corporations. And specifically, you look in the chapter, the examples you look at is basically corporate media and um, kind of how, you know, there's also issues of not solving the kind of underlying uh, concerns or problems uh, through this strategy. But uh, and, and you're talking about here what what you're calling racial purging. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of um, the types of modes of inclusion we see in the context of, of corporate media and how organizations like um, NPR or ESPN, in, in the examples you use, uh, shape racial politics uh, politics by responding to anti-Muslim speech? Yes. Yeah, so this chapter, similar to the last one, has a few cases that inspired the investigation into the issue. So in 2010, the journalist Juan Williams was fired by NPR uh, because he had stated while he was on Fox News as a contributor that he is scared to fly in an airplane with uh, someone in Muslim garb. And NPR said that he had made other kinds of statements that weren't in line with their values, and so they fired him. And he was then hired by Fox News on a multi-million dollar contract. So today we're referring to this as being canceled. So he was basically canceled by NPR and then he was canceled up by Fox News. And the second case was Kurt Schilling, who uh, used to be a baseball player. And then he was an ESPN analyst, sports analyst. Uh, and in 2015, he was fired. First, he retweeted an anti-Muslim meme and he was um, penalized, but not fired, suspended. Uh, with a warning, and then he reposted an anti-transgender meme, and he was fired. And it was surprising to me that people were being fired for anti-Muslim speech. I didn't know the U.S. cared about that. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, we've seen people be fired for the N-word, for using the N-word. And so this was a moment, here we are, 2010, 2015, public figures are being fired for Islamic Islamophobic speech. And so I was curious about this process. Um, did it help? I mean, it made certain people feel better, made people on the left feel good. Yay, we're not, we don't stand for racism. Fire that person. So I refer to this process as racial purging, which is basically excommunicating people from the social order for saying racist things or other kinds of discriminatory things. We express outrage, the media covers the scandal, and then the offending individual either apologizes or justifies what they said because of free speech. And then they're either canceled or they're canceled up and get a better, more lucrative position from the other side of the political aisle. Uh, but they usually face some kind of consequence to their career or their reputation. And so in this process, uh, I was trying to figure out, does this help? Does it help to cancel? Does it help? And I found that what it does is it individualizes racism, which is a very common phenomenon in the United States when we talk about racism and deal with racism. 
Uh, so by individualizing racism, it means these people are racist. And if we get rid of them, then we've gotten rid of racism and we can return to this fictional uh, normal order that's apparently free from racism. And then the corporations become heroes in the fight against racism. So NPR as a nonprofit organization or ESPN as a media corporation, they became heroes in this fight against Islamophobia. And ultimately, I'm not saying that the individual doesn't matter, but rather that firing individuals has become one of the primary ways that we deal with racism. And doing that tends to absolve institutions of their racism. Uh, and this phenomenon is also trying to highlight the, the limits of how we do diversity. That on the one hand, yeah, well, it seems good. We're, we're not standing for this uh, anti-Muslim speech by these public figures. And then on the other hand, it's not really going to solve the problem of anti-Muslim racism. And it makes corporations into heroes that uh, perhaps they are not the heroes that they appear to be. Yeah. And uh, the final chapter kind of pulls, pulls the curtain back a little bit on... Uh universities in terms of kind of uh, championing diversity uh, while also perhaps not supporting diverse communities within their institutions. So um, and here you, you, you talk about this term flex flexible diversity. Um, and this um, the example that you, you focus on primarily is at the University of Michigan. So can you, you tell us a little bit about some of the tensions played out for Muslim students at the University of Michigan who are engaged in uh, Palestinian activism, who, who uh, face many, many particular challenges there. Yeah, so this uh, chapter is based on my own observations as a faculty member at the University of Michigan for 14 years, where I was um, very much in touch with Arab students and Muslim students and their struggles to be included on campus. And I noticed that the University of Michigan, during times of crisis, in line with crisis diversity, would uh, enact initiatives to figure out how to create a more inclusive campus. So, uh, for example, there was a time period, uh, this was, I want to say, in the around when Trump was articulating the Muslim ban, where the administration created more prayer spaces on campus so that Muslim students who uh, pray throughout the day had didn't have to walk 15, 20 minutes across campus. And they did an amazing job. There are probably, I don't know, maybe 15 prayer, prayer spaces on campus for Muslim students. Uh, there were other moments where uh, some students were organizing to have a multicultural lounge, an Arab-American multicultural lounge, and they managed to, the administration responded and created an Edward Said lounge on campus. Um, there was a moment where uh, Arab graduation became a thing. So now at Michigan, they have Arab graduation. Uh, so th there's a lot that the University of Michigan has done, you know, including accommodations during Ramadan, uh, to create a more inclusive campus for both Arab students and Muslim students. And what I observed was that when these very same students were involved in Palestinian rights activism, 
suddenly all of these efforts to include uh, devolved. So they would be involved, let's say, in trying to get the student government to pass a resolution in support of having the university divest from funds uh, that are damaging to Palestinian life. Actually, the resolution was to investigate their investments, have the university investigate their investments, and then later on determine if they would divest uh, from certain companies that are um, collaborating in the destruction of Palestinian life. And it would lead to an entire Zionist network uh, attacking these students, calling them terrorists, uh, sending them hate mail, death threats, doxing them. And that experience for these students, oh, putting them on a canary mission, for example, a blacklist. Uh, and that experience for the students is the most extreme uh, experience of exclusion and marginalization. And while it's not necessarily in the case of Michigan, the university that was doing it to them, how the university responds matters to the student's sense of safety and belonging on campus. And so I, I use the term flexible diversity to refer to how the University of Michigan was trying to manage it. So they would try to expand diversity. Everyone's included. And of course, everyone's included on campus. Of course, you want to send a message that Jewish students are included and Zionist students are included and Muslim students are included and Palestinian students. And you want to create an inclusive campus environment. But during these moments, the flexible diversity ends up ignoring the power dynamic, ignoring the power differential in which uh, Jewish students have a lot of support on campus through Hillel, through outside Zionist organizations coming to campus, helping them with talking points. And the students who are organizing for Palestinian rights do not have those resources. And the result is this extreme experience of marginalization. So I was looking at how on the one hand, you can create all these efforts to be inclusive. And on the other hand, when this particular issue around Palestine emerges, it leads to this um, really extreme experience of marginalization and that the university ends up being complicit with that. So what can, what can we do? <laughs> can, what can we can, do? Can institutions uh, deal with anti-Muslim racism in, in more effective ways or are there you know, alternatives to these these kind of uh, weaker strategies uh, revolving around crisis diversity? Sure. So uh, with Hollywood and corporations, the, the main suggestion in the book is that when we focus on crisis, we miss looking at root causes. So if Hollywood responds to the Muslim ban and expands representations of Muslims, is that really the crisis? The crisis is a century of filmmaking that have marginalized many different groups. So the focus should be on how do we repair a hundred year history of representations? That's the crisis. So my suggestion is to focus more on the root causes um, rather than on the crisis moments. The crisis moments provide an opportunity. They provide a window. Uh, it's not that the crisis always leads to failure. The crisis moment did give us Rami. Hey, it gave us Ilhan Omar, the first Muslim woman in Congress, and Rashida Tlaib, and uh, it's more visibility. You see more Muslim women in hijab and advertising. So it, it can yield uh, things that feel good and that make somewhat of a difference, 
but our focus only on these crisis moments instead of really doing the work of what does it take to repair this history that we have inherited, a history that has revolved around white supremacy, has had life or death impacts for many communities. Uh, that should really be the focus of these efforts to diversify and create a more inclusive society. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a great book, and it seems like it's being published right at the right time now with uh, uh, D&I initiatives being kind of the new buzzword, uh, you know, along with CRT and and other things. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, I, hope, I hope those people will read the book, uh, and I hope you don't get uh, cycled into some of these ridiculous <laughs> conversations. Uh, that are happening out there around di diversity in initiatives. Um, before uh, before I let you go, um, I'm sure folks would love to hear the types of things that you're you're working on now uh, in your scholarship, in your uh, kind of work uh, within industries and uh, consulting and these kind of things. What what's going on for you? So since I tend to work on contemporary topics. The first book was on the 10 years after 9-11 and the second book was on the 10 years after that. I have to say, I don't know yet. I am <laughs> observing right now. It's just, I'm going to be observing for a while to see what's next for Muslims in terms of um, cultural politics and inclusion. Uh, I get, you know, these news feeds and I saw an article last week, actually from the Council on American Islamic Relations saying that for the first time, uh, the amount of complaints they received regarding Islamophobia decreased a little bit. I'm wondering, is that true? And if so, I can imagine how that is possible, which is that we are no longer living in this war on terror moment. I think around the pandemic, the new cycle finally shifted. And so I'm wondering if uh, since we are no longer consuming every single week another terrorist attack by a Muslim, another hate crime against Muslims, et cetera, et cetera, if that will lead to a decrease in Islamophobia. But meanwhile, the newsfeed says Islamophobia is up in Canada, India, Myanmar, China, all over the world. So I'm just observing. I'm observing right now. And um, the next book would likely be looking at what happens in the 2020s. That sounds good. Well, good luck uh, on the, uh, the search. And uh, maybe we can talk in 2030. Great. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That was my conversation with Evelyn El Sultani about Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, published with NYU Press in 2022. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. <laughs> <laughs>